Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Listen now to the Word of God. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show them portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I invite you to stand as you are able in body and in spirit that we may hear the word from John 14. John 13 through 17 is called the farewell discourse. And 
It is Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the occasion before he is betrayed and condemned and executed. Let us listen so that we may hear what God may say to us today. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the word, world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, there, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not the Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, those who love me and will keep my word and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> We gather today to worship and to celebrate. We celebrate that it is Pentecost, the, the day in the church calendar when we remember that God's Holy Spirit came in, in, as tongues of fire. And those disciples who had gathered and those followers who had gathered in that room in Jerusalem were able to stand up and to speak out for the things that had happened. It was a wonderful day for things that it happened in Jerusalem. We also gather today to celebrate and to recognize those high school graduates. It is a wonderful time of year at this season. New things are beginning. For both the church at Pentecost and for high school graduates, we are on a journey. We are on a journey of beginning things new in new ways. And we open ourselves to those possibilities. When we come to junctures of beginning things new, there is always a point of reflection. For you graduates, you are opening up to a new opportunity and next month or within three months or six months, you will be doing new things, going to different places, experiencing life in a different way than you have before. I would, if you have not already, I would encourage you to in, enter into a conversation with your parents. Mom, Dad, what was your high school graduation like? What did you do? And let them unfold that conversation. For we can learn so much as we share how things have happened. I must admit that as I thought about this occasion of your high school graduation graduates, it took me back to my own 
time and the dim and dark past. I do have some memories of it. And it occurred to me that there, is, there are some similarities. Because when I was graduating from high school, the church where I, where I was a member had experienced a fight, or I shouldn't say had experienced, was experiencing a fight, a conflict. There were significant theological and social disagreement issues that were going on in the community. Friendships ended for some people, and there were scars that many people carried for many years. People left the church during that time, all those years ago, over the decisions that were made. And for the record, my family and I were one of those that left. About a month ago, I discovered a book about my hometown during the years when I had been in school. It was not about churches, it was about the larger social situation that was going on, but it brought back to me how much that church fight had been important to me and how it had marked me and how I am still learning what the lessons of that time meant. Those of you who are graduating this year, high school graduates in this class, you have experienced church life here at First Presbyterian in a way that has been marked by difficulty and conflict. Those events have had a direct impact on the way in which youth ministry has been offered to you and to your families. And we need to acknowledge that. Yet you have persevered and you are here and your faith and your journey continue. And we need to rejoice with that for coming to this time, not simply for graduation, but for what this means in your life as you move to the next phase, as you journey on in life. The events that are described in scripture describes new junctures, new tracks. The disciples were uncertain about what had happened. They were distraught because Jesus had been executed. They were confused because of the resurrection. And then the Spirit comes. And because the Spirit comes, they have clarity to be able to go out into the community and to share what is happening in the world. The book of John shares three things in the verses that, that were read. You have an advocate, Jesus says to the disciples. You have an advocate. You will not be orphaned. You have a commandment. You are to love. And you have peace, something that is beyond completely understanding or knowing, but you have it. You have an advocate. You will not be orphaned. This week here at church, we hosted Bernard and Pamela Ondiak. They operate a mission school in Kenya in two communities, Wachara and Ahero. They have over 800 students that they work with. Most of them, many of them, are orphaned. Their one or both parents have died and the family cannot no longer care for them. And through their work, they provide them teaching and education and meals and shelter through a network of commitments that they have made. On Thursday, Pamela was speaking to one of the gatherings here and she said, we want the children to know that they will not be orphaned. Wow. You were not left destitute. 
It's not just in Scripture, but it is in the words and the passions of the Ondiacs, uh, who are our mission partners, and through them, they are our words as well, extending that out into the world. If God can do that in a place like Kenya, then what can God do in our lives? You have a commandment. The word is love. In English, we have one word for love that covers a wide variety of things. But in the New Testament, in the Greek language there, there are at least four words. Eros, which describes sexual passion. Philia, which describes affection between two people who are equal. Storage, which is described as the love of a parent and a child for each other. And agape, which describes unconditional charity and love. It may occur between people, but it is also the way in which God loves us. God's love is agape love. It is unconditional charity and love. It is beyond the bounds of what we know. This is the love that Jesus speaks of in this farewell discourse. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, agape one another, love one another. Just as I have loved and agape you, you are to agape one another. You are to love in this unconditional way. Wow. To love in an unconditional way. That is, that is so wonderful and so perplexing. How do we do it? How do we do it? You are to have peace, something beyond our complete understanding. In our human relationships, we often think of peace as the absence of conflict. One question that I always ask couples when they come to me and we're preparing for a wedding, I ask them, how do you fight? And there's usually an awkward silence. And they look at each other and they say something like, well, we don't or we haven't. And I want to tell them, go get some practice doing it. I'm not trying to be flip with that, our fights are about things that matter. They are about ways in which we make decisions. And when we fight, we are engaging in a relationship in marriage. We're trying to sort out the ways in which the household will work. And you can fight over all sorts of little things. And it doesn't have to be yelling and screaming. That's, those aren't necessarily fights. Fights can be said with very soft words as well. But at the end of the time, after the decision has been worked through, after the conversation has been had, you come to a peace, a place where the, there is resolution, where there might, you might even say there's reconciliation, where there is a way of, of seeing things differently, not just for one, but maybe for both. When things are important to us, be it in a marriage or be it in our larger family or be it at work or be it in the church or the world, when things are important to us and we engage with someone who does not share the same sorts of values or the same ways of valuing things, we are engaged in a conflict. We are engaged in, in sharing that. And we have to work very hard sometimes to come to terms with that. And the church has been doing that, not just recently, but the church has been doing that for centuries. We engage in those challenges. 
It is a common practice for churches to give graduates a token of, of, uh, for, for their faith. And today we have given Bibles to our graduating seniors. As I thought about that, I again was taken back to my own high school graduation time. And we had the same sort of thing. I came to church one day and came forward when my name was called, as did the others, and we were presented with a book. But it was not the Bible. It was a novel. It was called, it was by Charles Sheldon entitled, In His Steps, or What Would Jesus Do? You may have heard of that. Um, it tells the story of Henry Maxwell, who was a pastor of a church in a, a city, and one, on a Friday, he's working on his sermons, and a man comes to, his, to, to him who is out of work, who is destitute, who is desperate, and he asks for help, and Maxwell has nothing to give him, no assistance at all. Maxwell goes back to writing his sermon, and, it's, and the man goes away, but he comes to church on Sunday, and toward the end of the service, he stands up and he, he asks for help again to the congregation, and then he collapses on the floor. They take him away to the hospital, but he dies a few days later. Maxwell is perplexed by this because he didn't have anything to do. What could I have done? What would Jesus have done if he had been asked? 1 Peter 2.21 was the text that Maxwell was working on. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. I didn't think a whole lot about it at the time. I, to be honest with you, I didn't read the book. I put it on a shelf. The book was published in 1896, for goodness sake. That was a long time ago. A few years later, though, when I was in a college history course, the professor was talking about social reform movements in the United States. And he said, he came in and announced one day, he said, the topic that we're going to speak about today is the social gospel movement. And he said, do any of you know the book what would, in his steps or what would Jesus do? And several of us raised our hands. I hadn't read it still, but I knew the book. And he said, I want you to know that this book was a staple of the Christian devotion of the, of the 20th century and even now into, now into the 21st. The book that was given to me by that preacher in that church that was having the fight, I remember that preacher because he preached against a lot of things. He preached against sin. You would expect that, right? He preached against materialism and consumerism and liberalism, and he preached against the social gospel. That's what I knew about the social gospel. That's what I was expecting the professor to say. But the professor said, in his steps, what would Jesus do? That book is a manifesto for the social gospel movement in America. What? 
That didn't make sense. I'd grown up hearing that the social gospel was something to be against, yet the preacher who had said those things was giving me the manifesto for that movement? What gives? Was my professor ignorant of what he was talking about? Was the preacher wrong? It took me a while to figure it out and to listen, but I did. The social gospel that I had heard condemned was about the activity of many churches that sent folks into the South in the 1960s and 70s to work in the civil rights movement. That was what he was talking about. And those individuals, those, those people who went, were indeed children of the social gospel because that movement helped create the whole ecumenical movement of the 20th century. All the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches, those are derivatives of the social gospel. But there are other descendants of the social gospel movement. The idea that a church should build a gym and house community activities comes from the social gospel of the early 20th century. The idea that the church is the place that feeds people is something that is directly connected to that message. And yes, the idea that a person should have a relationship with Jesus Christ is part of the social gospel. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply about either concern for the world or only for personal salvation. Jesus affirmed the words of the Hebrew law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Christians have been fighting about what that means not simply for the last 10 or 15 years, not simply for the last 120 years, we have in some form or fashion fought about that stuff all the way back to the very beginning of the church. Yet, through that all, God is able to provide a witness for us and through us. Sometimes God can use us even when we don't think God can. Sometimes, we become conduits for other people to see God's love and grace at work in the world. Sometimes we become the conduits by which people are drawn to God's love. Years later, I was asked to return to my hometown to assist in the funeral of a family friend the person who officiated at the service was that preacher that I had grown up with who spoke and preached against all those other things. I was a little bit uncertain as to how that would go because I had not seen or spoken with him in many, many years. But I realized as I was engaging with him in that time, that place, all those years later, I realized a depth and a breadth and a faith that he had that I had not given him credit for and I had not understood. It took us a long time to come together in a sense. It was me who needed to understand. I think he knew all along and I am thankful that I had the opportunity 
to be blessed by him in that way. Jesus said, you are not going to be abandoned. The Ondiaks are ways of expressing God's love in Kenya, and we have ways of finding it here. We are to love in the fullest sense of that word, and we will find peace in our honest relationships with God's presence. We are on a journey of faith and life. We continue to be on it. For you graduates, go forward with confidence, prepared for what is next. For all of us, may we go forward knowing of God's presence, of God's love, and of God's peace. Thanks be to God. Amen.